The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. So our scripture reading this morning is Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. I won't make you stand um, because our Exodus readings, a lot of them are going to be fairly lengthy. So occasionally we will stand to remember um, that we like to honor God's word. It's a sacred thing. But today um, we will think those thoughts from our seats. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Today we start the book of Exodus, which is exciting for many reasons. First, it's just great to be exposed to Scripture, any part of Scripture, right? Because we know that the Holy Spirit is going to use it to grow us and to change us. But also, Exodus is exciting because it's the clearest picture we have of our salvation before Christ. Some call it the gospel according to Moses. It tells a story of a people crying out to God and being saved from slavery and being saved to devotion to God. 
and throughout Exodus, we're going to see the missionary heart of God. We're going to see that he is committed to acting in history so as to make himself known. And that's very good news for us. Because what we need most of all is found only in him. And he's committed to making himself known. And that commitment is true throughout the book of Exodus, which we're going to divide into three sections based on the three ways that God reveals himself on these pages. We're calling our series The God Who Saves, The God Who Speaks, and The God Who Stays. The God Who Saves, that's the part of the book that you're probably most familiar with. It'll take us through the plagues, through Passover, through the Red Sea. But then there's the God Who Speaks. He doesn't leave us uncertain about his character. He doesn't leave us unknowing what what life is meant to be, how we're supposed to operate. He spoke at Sinai. And Jesus himself reflected that that revelation is absolutely necessary. And Jesus hinted that it's ultimately speaking about him. Well, lastly, in the later chapters of the book, the part that you might be tempted to skip over but definitely shouldn't, we see plans being executed for the construction of the tabernacle, a place where God would dwell in the midst of his people. And that's a reality that's fulfilled for us even more in Christ, who referred to his body as the true temple. And the tabernacle is also a picture for us of the new heavens and new earth, the coming realm where God will dwell without barriers among redeemed humanity. So the God who saves, the God who speaks, the God who stays. He wants us to know him from all of those perspectives. And this morning we'll have a glimpse of the faithfulness of the God who saves. He's faithful even when we're waiting for final deliverance. And that's our situation exactly in this time between the two comings of Christ. We know that we're a people for his own possession. We believe his promises, and yet we look up and deliverance isn't fully here. We're in the midst of dark circumstances. One of the easiest ways for the enemy of our souls to neutralize the people of God is through fear. Maybe you have thoughts of dread and futility from time to time. Maybe if you're the only actual Christian in your family or at your hostile workplace and you're trying to live out the faith in a context of suffering and opposition, it can feel like the cost of bearing the name of Christ is just too great and God seems silent when you need him most. That can be the experience of some individuals during some seasons in any generation, in any context, that can happen. But it's also true that there are certain generations and certain contexts where such darkness is the experience of every believer. They experience schemes to silence and compromise Christians. The lifestyle that their parents once took for granted is suddenly threatened, and they they wonder, will my kids or grandkids, will it even be possible for them to learn about Christ? And they're tempted to go into faith hibernation because they suspect that's what it will take to survive. When dark times come, are you tempted to believe that you're left to fend for yourself and that you're fighting a losing battle? What if the dark circumstances seem to overtake a whole generation? What if the dark circumstances last for hundreds of years and it seems that there's nothing to be done except live work in brutal circumstances, be quietly faithful, and then die 
Well, actually, that was a situation for many Christians throughout history. Where was God during the reign of the, the Roman emperors like Nero and Domitian? Where was God in the 7th century when mostly Christian Middle East and North Africa were overwhelmed by brutal Islamic conquerors? Where was God when four generations of Christians behind the Iron Curtain lived in constant fear of exposure and betrayal and arrest and torture? And some Christians, even in America today, are fearful of a perceived darkness closing in. What if the next generation were to be specifically targeted as extremists or socially and economically compromised simply for holding to basic historic Christianity? What would it mean for our faith if God were to allow that to happen? How in the world could we live with hope? How could we live optimistically? Well, Exodus 1 has good news for us this morning. It tells us that in dark times, God's promises don't die and human plots don't work. In dark times, God's promises don't die. We see that in verses 1 through 7. And human plots don't work. We're going to see that twice in verses 8 through 22. So here we've got a, a basic outline of where we're going. And our text begins with the names of the sons of Israel and with news that then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And if you're new to the Bible, you'll be forgiven for thinking that you might have missed something with that introduction. Even though it's not reflected in our English translation, the first word of this chapter in the Hebrew is and. And because Exodus is a continuation of Genesis, it picks up right where that book left off. And it starts by speaking of a migration of a family into Egypt. And if you're not familiar with the end of the book of Genesis, I'll try to catch you up quickly. Around the year 2000 BC, God picked one man, Abraham, and promised him that through his family, God would bless all the clans of the world. And he would do that by giving them a land. And that that land would be where the blessings would eventually play out in Abraham's truest descendant, our Lord Jesus, and it's from that land that his blessings would then go out into the world. So a promise for land, and then God also promised to make Abraham's offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And everyone who blessed Abraham's family would be blessed, and everyone who cursed Abraham's family would be cursed. Well, Abraham believed God, and so that was considered righteousness in God's eyes. And Abraham and Sarah had an heir named Isaac. Isaac and his wife Rebekah had an heir named Jacob, or Israel, as he came to be called. And Israel had 12 sons. To make a long story short, one of those sons named Joseph, through a, a string of incredible events, um, he ends up as prime minister of Egypt in a crucial time and his wise decisions in managing resources so as to mitigate famine ended up saving millions of lives and also making that pharaoh even more insanely rich and honored. So as a reward to this brilliant foreigner, Joseph, who, who saved his kingdom, that pharaoh enthusiastically welcomed Joseph's whole clan to make their home in the fertile region of Goshen in the northeast part of Egypt. And verse 5 says that there were 70 persons. But censuses in the ancient world only counted the men. So once we include women and children, it was probably about 150 people. So as we enter the book of Exodus, keep in mind those promises of the land and countless offspring to Abraham. 
One other passage you should keep in mind from the very start of the Bible, Genesis 1.28. God's charge to the first humans was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Why, why give that command to be fruitful and multiply? Was it just trying to tie up loose ends? Like, well, I made this big earth. I guess there better be people to do something with it. No, it was with purpose because the humans had been created in the image of God. Now, in the ancient Near East, kings would make images of themselves out of stone, and they would place those statues strategically to mark and claim the extent of their territory. Well, before any of that, God, who is king over all, made not statues, but living images. And he commanded them to multiply and to carry his image all over creation, declaring his dominion over all. So keep that in mind, because remember, Exodus is all about God's commitment to make himself known in the earth. So here in verse 7, we see Genesis 1.28 coming together with the promises to Abraham. And it shows us that Israel is living under the blessing of God. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They're being fruitful and multiplying. They're being multiplied like Abraham's offspring were supposed to. God is keeping his promises to bless his people and he's moving forward his purposes for creation. A people representing him is multiplying and spreading and that's what's happening at a core level underneath everything else. Even though we'll see that, it, that dark times have descended on the descendants of Israel. In dark times, God's promises don't die. He's still multiplying his people. He's still making us strong in adversity. And it's not hard to be part of that story. If you can get married, if you can have children, and for your part, if you can raise them to know the Lord, that is no small thing. And whether you have children or not, if you're faithful to simply hold out Christ to neighbors and coworkers and classmates and friends, that is a life well spent. God is in the business of blessing those efforts. He doesn't need the surrounding culture to be friendly in order to multiply and strengthen his people. He promises that the good news will keep advancing, that history is moving toward a great multitude that no one could number, enjoying his presence forever. So we can keep being faithful in simply bearing witness to Christ right where he's placed us, trusting that he will accomplish the multiplication and strengthening and spreading of his people. So Abraham's tiny clan had grown into a nation, but verse 8 brings us a plot twist. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He probably knew of Joseph, but he didn't acknowledge his legacy. He didn't honor all the good that Joseph had done for Egypt. So, and, and he probably also saw that the Israelites were living in some of the most fertile land, which was also a, military, uh, a strategic zone for the military. And uh, so he says to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Let's deal with them shrewdly, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they would join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So their numbers are flourishing because God was being faithful to his promises. But the blessing from God became the source of their enemies' irrational fear and hostility. Did you know that that's how it works? 
the more you walk on the path of Christ, the more you grow in love for God and love for people, the more you grow in holiness, the more there will be a target on your back. The covenant blessings stir up hatred among those who refuse to see the hand of God at work. And that's why 1 John says, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. And 1 Peter says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. God's blessing draws the opposition of those who oppose God. And in this case, Pharaoh has two goals. Neutralize them from becoming a military threat and at the same time, keep them from escaping so that he can exploit their labor. Notice that those two challenges directly oppose God's promises for his people. Because if they can't multiply, then they won't be as numerous as the sand and the stars. And if they can't leave the land, then they can't inherit the homeland from which they had come. So by setting himself against these people, Pharaoh has placed himself on a collision course with the God of the universe. Now, Pharaoh's evil is disguised as wisdom as he sells it to his counselors. Notice how he he uses scare tactics to get his people behind him. There was nothing to suggest that the Israelites were a threat. And and even if they were a threat, wouldn't it just help you to have them leave? But you're, you're trying to keep them from leaving. And notice that he doesn't expect any opposition to enslaving them. I mean, this is hardly consistent with people who are actually a threat. But the the real issue is that Pharaoh wanted to control them. So he assumes their sinister motives and sells that line to his people. He was drumming up fear so that he could consolidate his power. And this plot by Pharaoh actually shouldn't have come as a surprise. Because in Genesis 15, God had told Abraham... Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So this oppression shouldn't have been a surprise to those who had paid attention to what God had already revealed. And dark times shouldn't be a surprise for us either. Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So just like Israel in ancient Egypt, we are called to endure, knowing that our God is with us, trusting that our God will deliver us and reward us. Do you think that any scheme that's contrary to God's purposes for his people will be successful? Of course not. And verse 12 tells us, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So Pharaoh had dreamed up this slavery scheme, quote, lest they multiply. Maybe he thought that the hard labor would decrease opportunity for conception or potentially kill them off quicker than they could replace themselves. But the joke's on him because verse 12 tells us that they multiplied all the more. So God has defended his people by multiplying them, but this defense of them only makes them seem all the more dangerous to the Egyptians, which leads to a ramp up in hostility. We read, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So Pharaoh's propaganda had already worked and maybe they were, the Israelites were so numerous that they were spilling out of the Goshen region. Maybe they were mixing with the ethnically Egyptian neighborhoods. 
This is a story as old as time. Economic migrants are initially welcomed and utilized, and then they prosper, and then they are resented and feared. It happens in many places all over the world. And I think I'd be remiss here if I didn't talk a bit about immigration. What I'm about to say is for your hearts, okay? It's not meant as a political statement of any kind. Immigration is a complex issue. Certainly all nations everywhere have border policies of some type. They have, they, they have to, for the safety of their citizens, for the stewardship of the resources. There have to be policies. Now, we may argue about what those quotas and guidelines should be, but that's not the heart issue. What I want to make sure is never happening in our midst is the villainization of an entire population. May we never sound like Pharaoh and spread the message or believe the message that those people are dangerous. Their skin doesn't look like ours. They speak with an accent. Their customs don't blend with ours. And that means they're out to get us and, and it's a problem we have to manage. No. Later in Exodus, we'll read these words. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Recent linguistic scholarship actually suggests that the term Hebrew might have been a general term used for refugees throughout the Middle East at that time. And the New Testament reminds us that all Christians are in fact sojourners and exiles in this world. So let's love our immigrant neighbors the same as we desire to be treated on our immigration journey to the celestial city. But the Egyptians feared the Hebrews and they enslaved them with violence in the excruciating heat of brick kilns. Can you imagine that? Day after day, year after year, stumbling around, breaking their backs, skin caked in clay and sweat and charcoal smoke and dust with their human dignity dried and cracked as well. So, the plot was foiled. They didn't decrease in numbers, but things still weren't looking good. With this first plot not reducing the population, a second plot by Pharaoh comes into view. Verse, verse 15 says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. So this is a secret plot. If this plot were successful, then eventually there'd be no more dangerous males, only a large female population that could stay enslaved or maybe be used to boost the Egyptian population. Well, these two midwives were, they were likely Hebrew based on their names, but they, were, they would have been leaders of a guild of midwives uh, for such a large population. And, and so they would have been part of the government machinery to some extent, they would have benefited from certain rewards and status because of their position. So the question is, would they protect themselves by doing what they were told? I mean, after all, who could argue with the most powerful man in the world at that time? Will the plot of Pharaoh succeed? Verse 17 tells us no. Because the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives. Now likely a year or two had passed, and he'd seen how the, the results played out. And he said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And they tell him, 
look, we, we just can't get to these strong women before they give birth on their own. Babies are just slipping out everywhere. So Pharaoh, I guess Pharaoh had no way of checking their anatomy claims and still maintaining the secrecy of his plot. And God dealt well with the midwives. The, the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Notice how Shifra and Pua, they're just two working women trying to make it through a hard life. See how they fought against this evil scheme. They could have justified what they were being asked to do. They could have said, look, if we just get the population down a little, then, then Pharaoh will let up and these people in the end will have easier lives. Are they really in a place to raise children anyway? Maybe this way they won't have to work so hard and then they'll integrate with the larger society more easily. But they didn't say that. What does it say about the midwives? They feared God. They had a grasp of the sanctity of life as a divine gift. They honored their consciences regardless of the political pressure. Quiet and principled resistance. And we see that replicated today in those who come alongside women with unwanted pregnancies, never intimidating them, but educating about possible assistance or adoption, helping them to think about the future without fear, sharing the gospel with them. We see quiet and principled resistance also in the public school teachers who love all students well, no matter what they're struggling with, but who quietly refuse to teach experimental sexuality and gender identity. And we see that same courage modeled in people in the corporate world who lose their jobs rather than calling evil good. So, it's no accident that Pharaoh leaves this Pharaoh unnamed. He was the most powerful man in the world at that time, but ultimately he was a nobody. He was a tool in the hand of God. But Moses does record the names of Shifra and Pua for us to honor throughout all generations because they were not afraid. You know, we fear people so much because we don't fear God. And the fear of God is absolutely essential if we are going to make it through the dark times. Who are you going to fear when everyone in your school or your workplace thinks Christians aren't just nutty, but they're actually enemies of the public? Are you going to fear their disapproval and their rejection? And are you going to adjust your thinking to match theirs just so you can blend in? Decide now to fear God, not people. Because if you try not to offend in both worlds, you will walk away from God. And there will always be compelling reasons to compromise. Just a little shift, and you won't lose this relationship. Just a little shift, you won't lose this opportunity. It'll start in subtle ways. You'll rationalize a certain decision or a certain viewpoint. You won't be prayerfully using the Bible as your guide, but you'll be relying on your own sense of logic and the desire for belonging in the culture. And one day, you will wake up as Pharaoh's enforcers, only masquerading as friends of the people of God. Shifra and Pua took the harder path. One question that people have discussed a lot from this passage, did these midwives lie? Probably, but they're commended for it. Pharaoh had no right to the truth because he was thwarting God's design. Christians hiding runaway slaves on the Underground Railroad had no obligation to tell the truth to law enforcement officials. Christians hiding Jews during the Holocaust had no obligation to tell the truth to the Nazis. Rahab was honored by God, not scolded for how she lied to hide the Israelite spies. And when we get to the Ten Commandments, we'll see that they actually don't say 
do not lie. What do they say? Do not bear false witness. The metaphorical context is a court of law where if you lie, harm will come to an innocent victim. But Shifra and Pua had no obligation to tell the truth here to the serpent's lackey as he's attempting to commit atrocities. And neither do we. In the very beginning when the serpent was slandering and slandering God and tempting Eve, do you know what should have happened? She should have said, oh, that's very interesting. Come closer. Tell me more. I'm really interested in what you're saying. All the while reaching for a heavy stone or thick branch to crush that garden intruder. That's what should have happened. And Shifra and Pua are women like that. Women who see truth clearly and thus they are rewarded for their strategic withholding of truth. They will have a share in Israel's future. Pharaoh's plans are thwarted again. Well then, Pharaoh commanded all his people, openly now, no more subtle schemes. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Can you imagine this barbarism in a society that at its time was the most cultured and civilized in the world? Modern society would never stand for such targeted genocide, right? Well, listen to this quote from the year 1921. I wish to point out that the unbalance between the birth rate of the unfit and the fit, which is the greatest present menace to civilization, can never be rectified by the inauguration of a cradle competition between these two classes. Pause. This person is saying that the increase of those classified as unfit in society is society's greatest danger. And there's no way to fix it by having the people who are okay just try to outbreed this unwanted class. And so the quote goes on to say, the fertility rate of the inferior classes, the feeble-minded, the mentally defective, the poverty-stricken classes should not be held up for emulation to the less fertile parents of the educated and well-to-do classes. On the contrary, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the over-fertility of the mentally and physically defective. Who do you think wrote that? Adolf Hitler? Yeah. No, it was Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood. That's why the organization started, to eliminate unwanted segments of society. See, Pharaoh's efforts wouldn't be the last time that powerful engineers of society schemed to do away with potential lives that they considered a threat to their way of life. It's not the last time murder would be passed off as health care. Only now we're more sophisticated and we, we take action before the moment of birth. Instead of the Nile, dismembered preborn bodies are discarded in medical dumpsters. And instead of getting the midwives to do it, we convince the mothers and the fathers that it's virtuous of them to take the steps themselves. And I just want to pause here and say, if you have played a part in any such tragic event, statistics would say that some of you have, then there is mercy there is forgiveness, there is healing. You are absolutely in the right place. Look to Christ. But my point is that across the millennia, God's people have universally renounced efforts to dispose of unwanted children. 
This isn't a new issue. Do we think that just because children come about through us that, that we are somehow their creator to do with as we please? Like Pharaoh, do we think that we are God to say that certain children, simply because the conditions surrounding their birth aren't a gift from God, that he can't make something of their lives? We know that the good news of Christ can redeem even people from the most tragic of circumstances, people with the most hurt, the most lack in their lives. In fact, they often come to Christ more readily. And maybe that's exactly why Satan has targeted them. Just as God is in the background of Exodus 1, so also is Satan. And the prophecy of Genesis 3 said that the offspring of the serpent would always be at war with the offspring of the woman. Do you know what emblem was front and center on the headdress of the Egyptian pharaohs? The serpent. That'll be important for us to remember later is what's being set up here is a battle between the purposes of God and the purposes of Satan on the front page of the world's most affluent empire in the year 1500 BC. And now not only Pharaoh but all of Egypt knew and was complicit in these horrors. But let's not lose sight that there were 400 years of hardship and atrocity before that vindication played out for Israel. 400 years when God's presence was not evident. We have to deal with that reality. We like to think that God's blessing is an alternative to hardship, but actually in this world, the two are inextricably linked. So if you're only interested in a pleasant, hashtag blessed life, may I humbly suggest that you think more about whom you're following and the opposition that followed him everywhere he went. So today we saw two plots, enslavement and murder enacted against the ancient people of God. And in both cases, humanity schemes God thwarts those plans, but then the schemer's cruelty toward the people of God only intensifies. And because of that pattern of attack, divine defense, harder attack, it, it might feel like our passage today is incomplete. Like, why doesn't God solve this for them? We got a small glimpse of his protective power, but this kind of seems like a song of deliverance that's played on a muted horn. And that's why it's only the introduction. Remember God's promise to Abraham. I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward I will bring them out. So Pharaoh had left the God of Israel out of his reckoning. And we can easily do the same. Do we think that in, in dark times God has forgotten us? Are we terrified of losing power or of losing the next generation? What do we do when the whole world seems to be standing against us and when confessing Christ seems to cost us dearly and gain us nothing? when prayers feel unanswered. Now, we may never think of relinquishing the faith, but do we grow cold and bitter? Instead, we should look to the descendants of Israel who faced the single darkest time anyone has ever known on the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a simple cry of agony. It was a reference to an entire psalm. Psalm 22 starts with those words of despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then it moves on to describe the suffering 
than to speak of God's purposes in the darkness. And then it finishes by praising God for his deliverance. And it's that coming rescue and vindication that Jesus was pointing people to. And he died and he rose again so that by his power, you could believe and speak the truths of Psalm 22 on your darkest days. We should learn that in times of opposition, God multiplies and strengthens his people. His promises don't die and human plots don't work. Are there dark days ahead? Probably. Will the churches be less free, have fewer resources, lose all credibility in society at large? Probably. But rest assured, those same dark days will be bright days of God's building a people, lean and strong, growing against all odds because God's favor and adversity in this world come hand in hand. So how can you be faithful and joyful in a a hostile workplace or school or, or neighborhood? You can believe God's promises to Abraham and through Christ that he is going to cause his image to multiply throughout the whole earth and no darkness can get in the way of that. So our great God, we pray for greater faith to believe these promises. Give us eyes of insight to look back on this narrative about your ancient people to see that the way you were acting back then is the way you still act. Your character doesn't change. Your defense of your people doesn't change. Lord, open our minds and our hearts to receive the book of Exodus. We praise you this morning as the God who saves no matter what the circumstances. Amen.